are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. I am really, really, really excited to share today's episode with you. One reason for this is that I am a massive advocate of innovation in the women's healthcare space because it is actually mind-blowing to me how misunderstood women and their bodies are, how political the topic has become, and that ultimately society and work as a whole is still not built for women to take care of themselves and also succeed in their careers. For example, a 2019 study shared by Deloitte found that one in five women felt that a healthcare provider had ignored or dismissed their symptoms, and there's a ton of data around underrepresentation of women in clinical trials. I share this because these are hard facts, and I think it's so important to have these conversations and for me to participate in facilitating them. Today's guest, Cynthia Plotch, is co-founder at Styx, which provides women with products and education around their health, like UTI tests, ovulation tests, pregnancy tests, the Plan B pill, and more. And their brand is an example of true 360 innovation because they are thinking about how their products are delivered, the branding of their products, or the lack of branding in their products, their communications, and you'll hear all about that in our discussion. Cynthia is so brilliant and we had so much fun and it is no surprise that she was named as Inc.'s 100 Female Founders in 2021 as well as Forbes Next 1000. I hope you enjoy the conversation and learn as much as I did from this powerhouse of a woman. Hey Cynthia, welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to have you, especially because I've heard some very interesting tea about your founder story. But for those who may not know, Styx is a female-founded, no-judgment health brand uh, with all sorts of different products ranging from pregnancy tests and other sort of things for fertility and the entirety of the women's health journey, which we will surely get into. But I hear that a part of your founder story originated because you ran into your boyfriend's mom while buying a pregnancy test. So tell me more about that experience and how do you go from that to starting this incredible company? Well, first of all, I've never heard of a founder story be referred to as tea, and I'm obsessed with that. I will be using that everywhere. <laughs> Sorry to every other interview I do from now on, but this one coined it. <laughs> so going from running into my boyfriend's mom to starting a company that sells comprehensive women's health care sounds possibly like a jump, but the truth is it all built really naturally and organically. My co-founder and I had worked for many years at another consumer startup, and I become passionate about this idea of creating better experiences for the female consumer. And then, like you said, I ran into my boyfriend's mom while buying a pregnancy test, which is awful. I still, it's been years and I still turn a little bit red. Sorry for anybody listening that you can't see me. I'm turning red too and it didn't even happen to me. <laughs> but I ran out of the store and I called Jamie, now my co-founder at the time, my coworker and my dear friend. And I was crying about how awful that experience was. I was in my mid-20s and I did not want to have a baby. And thankfully I got the result I was looking for, but it was this 
intense and horrifying moment that I think illustrates how cringeworthy everything around these products can really be. And really quickly, Jamie and I went from, oh my God, this is terrible and embarrassing and mortifying and all these different things to, holy crud, I cannot believe there's not a better better solution out there for people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we had been in the startup world for a while. And so we knew that coming across a problem can be really special. And so we just started talking to all these people that we know who had or had not used pregnancy tests at the time. That was the first thing that we were focused on. And it spiraled today into sticks, which like you said, kind of full service vaginal and reproductive health. I can probably answer the question from my own experience as a woman, but what was it about the experience for you or the hundreds or thousands of women that you now serve that you think made the experience so cringy? Was it the fact that these products look scary and awful? Was it the fact that you ran into somebody who was like a figure? Or was it the fact that you had this quote-unquote women's problem, whether it's pregnancy or a UTI or a yeast infection? I think the answer is D, all of the above plus more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think in that story, absolutely the lack of control over my experience was what made it so awful for me in that moment. And that definitely is a fairly universal experience. The feeling of loss of control during these experiences can be really horrifying. But I think zooming out a bit more, it starts so much earlier than that. And it really starts with a lack of sex education and really not having understanding over our body. I mean, you think about something like a yeast infection. I don't know about you, but I was never taught normal versus abnormal vaginal discharge. I was never taught about what a probiotic can do, especially if you're taking antibiotics for something and how important that can I was never taught to pee after sex. Those are all things I either learned the hard way or from girlfriends, from media, from doing my own work. There's things I learn about my body every single week working at Sticks, and we are years in, and I spend so much time in this space. So I think that's where it starts is that we're never really given or provided an understanding over our bodies. But then to all of your points, I think that comes true. The brands don't represent us and our experiences at all. In-store experiences can be cold and clinical. There is a lack of control over that experience. And then there's confusion, not just in understanding what's going on in our bodies, but what we need. Pregnancy tests can feel like this crazy product and they're actually like deeply scientific and easy to use and understand, but they've been so polluted by the industry. So I think it's, there's so many pieces that really cringify to coin a term here. The mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine as you've solved this problem so far and as you continue to solve it, that's something that you are considering, like that end-to-end experience. And I know that you actually launched with white label pregnancy tests. And even today, across all of the products that you have, whether it it is a pregnancy test, whether it's a UTI test, you're able to receive a product without any sort of branding, making it very inconspicuous. And then you're also able to receive it incredibly fast. Latest I heard, you know, some Something like four hours? Two, depending on where you live. Um, But we also sell through on-demand partners as well because, okay, let's all be real. If you've ever had a UTI, you know you cannot wait even two hours for pain relief. So we sell through GoPuff and Dashmart and Getir. We just launched on Amazon. So definitely we understand the urgency here and are looking to sell for it as much as we can. 
And so as entrepreneurs, really going back to your story, your co-founder's story, some of the things that stick out to me is a how hard it is to just say, okay, I'm going to do this startup thing in the first place, right? And I think B, how am I going to do this startup thing in the first place plus do it in the medical field while not being a doctor and while not having that experience to me sounds incredibly intimidating. And then C, really the logistics business and the challenge of that business. So break it down for me. How did you go about it? How did you kind of stay in it for the long run? And when was that aha moment of like, hey, this is actually happening and we're capable of doing this? I think I have those moments once a month, to be honest. (laughs) I hope I never stop having them. Being an entrepreneur is freaking hard. It always can feel like you're fighting a million fires. And I think the nature of being an entrepreneur means that you're both like the most optimistic and the most pessimistic person all at the same time. So on one hand, you're constantly selling a dream and thinking 10 years in advance and building towards Mm -hmm. and creating this future that you want to live in. But at the other, on the other side, you're, especially in the really earliest of days, everything can feel like it's going wrong all at once. And there's a million problems to solve. But okay, coming back to your original question about being in healthcare, not being physicians, what that's been like. I think there's a huge range of companies that operate within the health and women's health and digital health world. I think we hold ourselves and have always held ourselves to fairly high clinical standards. We've always worked with doctors and physicians. We've always made sure that we have the highest standard of FDA regulatory approvals. All of our educational content goes through medical review. It's signed off on by clinicians themselves. You know, we want to make sure that we're doing right by our customers, not just building a successful business. And that means medical ethics, as I like to think about it. And I think in the earliest days, there's so much we didn't know, especially around the world of regulation. Mm-hmm. But we knew that. And so we asked for a lot of help. We talked to every FDA lawyer that we could. We read everything we could get our hands on. We worked with our suppliers themselves to understand what that market was going to look like. And then the business has really grown and evolved naturally. You know, we went from pregnancy tests to further into the fertility category to really focusing on education and now comprehensive vaginal health. But we've kind of grown fairly methodically and been able to sort of control that as we go. So talk to me about that method within the madness. How how do you think about it? Yeah, we moved really, really fast. And I think our ability to do stuff quickly, efficiently, and cheaply is like part of the Stixie magic. For example, we put our first pregnancy test into the market with no brand around it pretty much whatsoever, deciding we were going to let the market kind of help gear us towards that brand. And then... I would say our method is really iterative, and that's a great example where the brand has changed so much since our early days, but constantly through talking, listening to customers, iterating on that, and doing that cycle over and over again. This We do the same thing when it comes to product development and product improvement and building the digital side too. Iterative approach and listening to our customers. And I love that you have such a tangible example of that because I do think that's kind of like what you would imagine to be the norm. Like everyone should be listening to their customers and everyone should be 
developing their product to solve for problems. But something that I've seen is that it's also incredibly hard because whether you are at a Fortune 500 company or especially when you're at a startup, there's a lot of pressure to execute and get stuff out the door. So I imagine you don't have an unlimited market research, customer research budget. So how do you go about making sure that you're staying in lockstep with your customers, especially when you are interacting with something as personal as their women's health? I will say, I do think because women trust us with their vaginal and reproductive health, they have a deep trust for us as a company and us as a brand that I don't think you get if you're selling deodorant or another kind Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. other sort of personal care product or whatever that might be. We're in the most intimate moment of our customers' lives with them. We are their partner in it. And so I do think that they treat us differently because of that. How we've learned from our customers has evolved so much as we've grown too. In the earliest days, Jamie and I would email every single person who bought from Sticks and ask them to get on the phone with us. We'd talk to every person as much as we can. We don't do that as much as I wish we still could as we've grown, Mm -hmm. but we definitely focus on every element of our customer touch point, whether it be somebody who comments on a TikTok, writes into our customer service team through our surveys or through focus groups. We try as much as we can to maintain those touch points. But we also watch our customer behavior and spend a ton of time in the data. Customers will tell you a lot, but they'll show you even more. And I think that's really important to follow, too. So in addition to the ways that you've been able to innovate around your brand or even shipping products without branding, and of course, the speed that you mentioned, one of the things that I found really exciting and different about your product is the lacking of a purchase history in order to protect your anonymity. So essentially, when you log on to sticks.com, you're not going to be able to see what are the products that you have bought. Talk me through how you are considering some of those other features of your platform. We've always put privacy, like I said, control, I think is what that represents, front and center in the customer experience. Some of our earliest ideas actually came from my 16-year-old cousin who helped Mm. me think about what would it mean for all different kinds of people to need this product, including maybe if you don't have your own credit card. So Mm. when you, for example, check out with Sticks, you can pay with PayPal to avoid any indication of what you're buying through a credit card. When you receive our package, not only is there no branding on the outside, but the label actually just says GS. It doesn't even have any identifiable information so you could track that return label back to the brand itself. So we definitely think about privacy through and through in that experience. Obviously, that partially comes from my own experience here. And then also understanding that control and doing things on your own terms is really important to women. And I think that 100% makes sense because typically when we think about privacy, we're thinking about data, but I think privacy is a 360 experience, right? Like you said, whether that's that label or what's appearing on your e-commerce site or your method of payment as you check out. Another product that I think has been extremely meaningful in what you've offered is you essentially launched a morning after pill called Restart. And as we've discussed the severe lack of access and education to reproductive health choices, you've asked yourself like in that space, how can we help and how can our kind of white labeling or speed be helpful in in a moment that is especially difficult for somebody who, who kind of has to take that contraceptive. So tell me more about that. And I know you also launched a donation bank initiative with it. Restart, I think, is the thing I'm most proud of at Sticks. We actually had a Sticks team day recently, went around the table and talked about our proudest moments. And that's what every single person on the team said. For so many of those reasons that you just mentioned, 
We launched Restart as we were watching the Dobbs court case move through the system. We saw the writing on the wall on what was going to happen to Roe v. Wade. We saw the writing on the wall of what was going to happen to women's choice, women's control, women's ability to make our own health decisions. And we knew that we were in this special position to actually be able to do something about it. And so we created Restart, which is our version of Plan B. It's a morning after pill, prevents pregnancy before it happens. And we did a couple of really important things around Restart. One, which is very sticky, is education. So many people don't know the difference between emergency contraception or the morning after pill and the abortion pill. They're vastly different products, and that makes it incredibly prohibitive to people. So many people think you need a prescription, you need a doctor, you can't buy it if you're under 18, and none of those things are true. So we spent a lot of time and energy, even before we ever launched that product, focusing on helping people understand what using emergency contraception really meant for them and how they could do it best. And then we launched Restart and we brought all of that empowerment and control and decision and authority and discretion into that product, which was obviously so critical. And then we also launched, like you mentioned, the Restart Donation Bank, where we and our community funded the donation of tens of thousands of units of this emergency contraception to anybody who needed them. And still to this day, if you need emergency contraceptive and you can't otherwise access it, you can come to our site. All you have to give us is an email and we will send you a free product, no questions asked. And it's really thanks to our community and our partners and the brand that we've built that we've really been able to continue and push this project forward. It's incredible, especially because I know as a startup, things like margins are so important and being able to have a really sustainable business model. But I think that really, to me, illustrates that when impact and giving is a part of your business model, that is really going to epitomize a successful company in the long term. So I just wanted to take a quick pause and say congratulations on that. It's incredibly meaningful and it's incredibly huge. Thanks. You know, our mission is to empower confident health decisions And the overturn of Roe v. Wade is a direct attack on that mission. And so we knew that we had to do something as women, as humans, as founders, as leaders in the reproductive health space to really take a stand and really make a difference. It's it's I think not just the thing that sticks, the thing in my career, probably the thing in my life I'm most proud of is the work we've been able to do around access. And you've done it while being an innovator and while, again, thinking through that customer experience. You can order this online. The the label is, once again, private and it's white labeled. So I think you've done it with such authenticity to your brand, which you can really feel as you read through that story. So obviously, I'm incredibly impressed by everything you've done. um, But I have to be realistic and assume that the fundraising process and also, you know, convincing, let's call them the non-believers has been incredibly challenging. I have often in my own experience have seen that women's health is written off as just that, a women's problem, when often it is so much more than a women's issue. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, fertility, pregnancy, abortion, those things are human human rights, they're human issues. um, But they've often been written off as women's issues. So talk to me about how fundraising has been like for you. um, And what that experience has been like also for you as a woman, not just a woman working on a women's health company. Yeah, I think there's a hundred digs against us. It is incredibly hard to raise institutional venture capital as female founders, two female founders, 
less than 2% of venture VC funding this year has gone to women. When I say that, I think it's always critical to acknowledge that Jamie and I are both white women and that comes with immense privilege. It is so much mm-hmm. for women of color to raise capital than it is for white women. And it's still hard for everybody nonetheless. I think it the difficulty grows exponentially when you think about nine times out of 10, the people sitting across from us on the other side of the table have never experienced the problem that we're trying to solve. That's not to say that you need to have a vagina to understand the value of sticks. There's a lot of men who have and do, but it takes a lot more to take somebody out of their own head and in somebody else's shoes when you're solving such a complicated and honestly emotional problem. So all of those things added a hundred, a million, a good billion challenges to our fundraising process for sure. The first time we raised capital, we had 250 no's, something like that. And that's not email rejections. That is Jamie mm-hmm. and I, 250 people who told us no. It has changed since then as we've had proof and traction and conviction and product market fit and other people around us and other people behind us. But it's definitely really, really hard to convince somebody who has never will experience this problem what an opportunity it is. We hear a lot of, let me ask my wife, let me ask my daughter. We hear a lot of people discounting all of the things that we have done. I was talking to an investor the other day about one of the common things that we hear, which is, oh, women's health is crowded. Oh, hers exists. Oh, modern fertility exists. Oh, Lola exists. Like, why does anybody need another company in this space? And he, a male, said one of my favorite things I've ever heard, which is if you have room for multiple AI companies in your portfolio, you have room for multiple women's health companies. This is a ginormous market. I mean, even just the piece we're attacking is $40 billion. We're talking about a multi-trillion dollar market when it comes to healthcare and healthcare focused on women in general. We're talking about things that affect 51% of the U.S. population. That's not even talking internationally. So yes, definitely came with a ton of challenges and I think taught us a lot about resiliency, which is the number one thing I always advise any founder to think about before embarking on their journey is how to build and maintain their resiliency and their strength because it's hard and definitely we had a lot of extra challenges there too. But you did come out on top of it. You have raised $7.6 million in funding since launching in 2019, which again is incredibly exciting, especially considering all of the challenges that you've had. Um, But again, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up some of the other pieces of being a woman founder. And especially, you know, I know that uh, Jamie Norwood, your co-founder, was recently named Forbes 30 Under 30. You yourself have multiple, like, fast company, Inc., Forbes accolades, and you guys have been all over the press, which is, you know, on one hand, so, so exciting. But I've seen this kind of story play out over and over again, where women are given this platform, and then they are torn down. So I'm just curious to ask you about whether that's something you're even thinking about or giving any sort of attention to, and how you are considering the conversation that you're a part of being really sustainable. Yeah, I think anybody in the public eye, which to your point, Jamie and I have kind of been thrust into, you have to hold yourself to a higher standard and you have to know that not even because of the, you know, the great girl boss takeout takedowns, but because you're serving as a role model and an example for people, you do have to make sure that you are 
like stepping into that honor and stepping into that privilege and like holding yourself accountable to that. So I would say that's the way I think about it. You know, if I want to inspire the next generation of young women to start their founder journey, if I want to create real change for all people across this country, I need to hold myself to a higher standard, not even because of what the media might write or a TikTok might say about me, but because I think it's important to step into that role. I I agree with you. And I think that in some ways where we as kind of that next generation of women entrepreneurs or women founders or women executives, we have that almost like learning experience from the generation of women who have done it before us. Um, But I also have to think about as you look at your male counterparts in the entrepreneurship space, how are you navigating maybe seeing them not go through those issues and, and really what role do you attribute to gender in your career and in your startup outside of, you know, some of the things that we've obviously discussed today? Life, my gender has given me a chip on my shoulder and made me feel like I have something to prove. I remember when I graduated high school, as in all the advanced math classes, I loved math and science as an economics major. So I'm just a numbers lady through and through. And a boy wrote in my yearbook, you taught me girls could be good at math. Stop. I remember a million moments like that for my whole entire life where I felt like I had something to prove because of my gender mm-hmm. that that only got a million times worse as a founder. When we were in an accelerator, it was a mix of people and genders and everybody would stand up like every week and do a pitch to a new group of mentors and investors and not to toot my own horn. There's a lot of things I'm not good at, but I am great in standing in front of the room and selling what sticks is and what sticks can be. But still, at the end of all of those presentations, everybody would walk up to the other founders with all sorts of questions and interests. And the first question I always got was, how old are you? Mm. That has continued a million more times when I was an economics major in Ivy League University. And in our first round of funding, a man asked me who I thought was going to be able to manage our finances because obviously I was not capable of doing it. Wow. It has happened so many times throughout this experience, but I also think it adds to my strength and my resiliency and it has enabled Jamie and I to find problems and create solutions that I don't think you would be able to do if you haven't lived your whole life in this market and with that chip on your shoulder. There's a reason I think why generally underrepresented founders, women, people of color, LGBT people and veterans tend to build better companies. And it's because we have something to prove. We're Mm -hmm. not given all the privilege that white men are in this world. And so we have to work way, way harder. I think it makes us fighters and survivors and stronger. And it's definitely a lot harder to be a woman in this space. But honestly, it's also our advantage here. Makes a lot of sense. And it really is not linear. And just to, you know, make sure it's crystal clear. I think that it's, it's sometimes it's so obvious about the sexism that exists, speaking to the examples that you've just mentioned. And sometimes it's, it's, you know, you look at something that happened to you. And I'm like, did that happen to me because I'm a woman? Or did that happen to me because this was personal or for some other reason? So I, I really appreciate you sharing those examples. And as we continue to explore this very complex notion of gender on this podcast. Um, So with that, I did want to hear more about where you're going with your company as well as what you're personally thinking. And so before I do let you go, I wanted to ask you one more question. And that is, where do you see yourself 
and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? I think the next 12 months, not to make this the theme of everything that I say, but both the next one and 12, I think are going to be all about resiliency. We are entering and in the middle of a very uncertain time in so many ways, economically, politically, culturally. And I think we'll see the industry and sticks really focus on building meaningful and sustainable companies and change. That's at least what's top of mind for us. And then your last time frame was 10 years. Oh my God, 10 years from now. I think the big change we're going to see in 10 years is the continued consumerification of healthcare. Healthcare is really complicated and a sticky industry to make change in because the power is very, very concentrated in this payer system within insurance companies. But the more and more we can give power to consumers, authority to make decisions, alternatives outside of the traditional system, I think the more we'll be able to move change faster because consumers will have that power and be able to insist on it. So I think in 10 years from now, the way the payer provider system looks and the control that consumers have, and I hope the understanding that we as people and especially as women have over our bodies will all will all have a lot more control and power in that situation. I love that. What an exciting and beautiful note to end on. Thank you so, so much for joining me today on the Win Win Podcast, Cynthia. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.